We're joined for a third time on COINTELPRO by Frank Milburn. He's a former British paratrooper, Five Eyes Intelligence Community, and an affiliated researcher for the Bagan Sadat Center for Strategic Studies. I'm Mike Spencer, here with my co-host as always, Austin. Frank, thanks for uh, sitting down with us today. Hey guys, thanks for having me back on. At our last recording, you had just come back from an Intersect conference. And uh, before that, when we talked to you, we discussed a couple of papers you've written. So I'm always curious to know what, what you've been up to. Yeah, I've, been, uh, I've delved quite deeply down the rabbit hole. Um, we talked about directed energy weapons, didn't we, before? Um, and kind of like espionage on U.S. soil. So um, I've been doing, or rather I did quite a lot on that. Um, I was going to publish some stuff on it, but then for, for various reasons, I didn't. And uh, I'm not going to for the time being. We plan to focus primarily on geopolitical issues and national security, obviously Russia and Ukraine talking to you. But um, for those listening who are not aware, so Project Unity is a podcast. Um, the guy who runs it focuses on you know UFOs and other anomalous phenomena. And he asked... Um, a man named Oak Shannon who ran the Los Alamos National uh, Laboratory and was basically in charge of most of their top secret like research projects. Oak Shannon was mentioned multiple times in like the Wilson Davis memo. And so he's kind of been this elusive figure for uh, years and years and years now. Uh, he's been brought up kind of multiple times by Joe Mergia or at UFO Joe. So it was pretty interesting to see Jay get this guy to come on the record and sort of verify what he's been. Well, verify some of these these points that are made in the memo um, and also corroborate that he has a relationship with Admiral Tom Wilson when Admiral Tom Wilson has denied this publicly multiple times, So, which is just great. What is the significance of the you know the Wilson Davis transcript and what does it mean to have its details backed up by this former special projects manager Frank what do you think the transcript itself so it's got all the necessary like keywords and phrases right so you know the intelligence and unacknowledged special access programs aliens crashes uh, aerospace technology contractor um, words allegedly uttered by by Wilson so I mean the significance is that there's you know particularly there's you know technology you know not of this earth. Um, you know, not made by man, not by human hands, um, a project or projects. So it's extremely significant. Um, I think that what um, this latest gentleman adds to it, I mean, it's more kind of like anecdotal uh, sort of you know, evidence. It's more, it's more kind of like, you know, the, the sort of atmospherics around it. Um, yes, he does know some of the key people involved. But I mean, you know, so does uh, you know, John Alexander. And if you looked at the, if you were at the um, SCU conference earlier this year, uh, John Davis. Don Davis actually asked that question. He said uh, about Wilson, and uh, John Alexander pointed into the audience at uh, at Dr. Eric Davis and said, "Well, why didn't you ask the? Why didn't you ask this guy? Because he's the author of it," <laughs> which I thought was amusing. Right. Um, no, I mean, what really <laughs> sold it for? What really sold it for me? I mean, was um, was Bob uh, Dr. Bob McGuire's comments? You know, being a, a long time kind of uh, you know a, a part of the, of the UK. Uh, sorry, that the American intelligence community, uh, when he said that uh, a colleague of his had actually received a letter from from wilson who was basically had jacked off that he hadn't uh, managed to get access to to one particular program that he'd been fobbed off but was particularly angry about it and bob said that he'd seen that letter and basically told the guy you know to get rid of it but that's really what sold it for me because i know bob so this information coming from oak shannon um yeah it's nice and it's nice to have sort of more confirmation but i think when people when people are talking about it in congress right in, in recent congressional hearings uh, that was brought up 
So obviously somebody's been whispering in their ear, like uh, you know, <coughs> Chris Mellon, uh, probably. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, and um, also as well. Um, don't forget uh, who's the other person recently been talking about it. Um, God, his name's just gone completely out of my head. Uh, geneticist. Oh, Gary Nolan. Yeah, Gary Nolan, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, lots of people are talking about it. I think I'd be, I would personally be careful with Oak Shannon as a source because he yeah. says in the interview, and this is no criticism of the man, right? But he says in the interview to Jay, um, he says, um, words to the effect, oh, you can't have preconceived notions, right, on the topic of UFOs. But he obviously does have preconceived notions himself because he, does. he, takes, the Bible, yeah. he takes the Bible literally. That, to me, kind of screams um, Colin's elite. I listened to the whole thing um, yesterday when he dropped the interview officially on YouTube and what was so striking about it. And, I, and let me just preface this by saying like, I, I did enjoy listening to Oak Shannon talk. Um, he's an intelligent guy, but right off the bat, I mean, he was establishing, Hey, I'm coming at this from like this extremely, you know, Christian sort of theological background. And, tries to use, um, you know, like the interdimensional hypothesis as a way to like back up that notion further. And so, I don't know, I, I had a little bit of an issue with that because, you know, like you said, there was, they were trying to establish that they shouldn't have preconceived notions, but like you said, here we are with this guy yeah. doing that exact thing. And so, I don't know, I, I had, I had an issue with that, but overall, it, I think it was still a very worthwhile, uh, interview and, and to get him finally on the record sort of confirming these these parts of the uh, the memo i mean look i, I personally I, I was initially skeptical skeptical in a healthy way not debunking i was skeptical in a healthy way about the wilson document and, and i'll just quote you guys what i wrote you know tail end of 2020 and i just said you know i said um talking about you know dr eric davis you know robert mcguire and, and everybody else i said however their comments do not constitute ironclad evidence in this particular case nor does an intriguing five-hour discourse by an anonymous x-files character however cleverly the supposed dots are connected proof requires an indisputably genuine document recording or verifiable insider going on the record anything else is supposition and theory but and also i'd add, I'd add to that well you know knowledge of the program itself which we wouldn't have you know at congress if they can subpoena the people they'll they'll have um, access to the program or programs and the other evidence, obviously, would be the technology itself, but we're never likely to see that. But look, I'm sold on it. I'm, I'm not, uh, and I think a lot of great work has been done on it by, by various, uh, you know, podcasters and, and bloggers, right? I mean, Joe Mergia, he, he, Joe Mergia, he's done a lot of really good work on it. Um, so, yeah. no, I, I was sold on it basically when, when Bob McGuire came out and started talking about it. That's what sold it for me because I know Bob and I know he's, 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 he's 100% straight down the line. So, if he says that, then I'll take it to the bank, even in the absence of not actually seeing that letter myself. Right. And the transcript of that Wilson Davis interview, I think it's just interesting to look back, you know, even just to 2020, what a journey that we've been on in our understanding about its its validity, because that's a document that floated around for a little while. And then yeah, since like 2018. Right. And has gradually mm-hmm. been corroborated, entered into the congressional record. People have been briefed on yeah. its information. And then we, we, you know, have this further uh, corroboration. So it's, it's, yeah. it's been on a fascinating journey. And I think it like, yeah. like you say, Frank, it's it just further corroboration of something that we've been more certain of mm-hmm. as, as time has gone on. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think that, I mean, a key, key thing for me was, was you know, entered into the congressional record, like that you just said, um, right. you know, somebody has been talking to Congress right behind the scenes. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, they're not going to come out with, with, and, and talk absolute BS. So that's just, mm-hmm. you know, one more kind of nail in the, in the coffin of the debunkers really. 
Mike Gallagher from uh, representative from Wisconsin, uh, or he he admitted that Gary Nolan was the one who sort of briefed him on that document. But I think in one of Nolan's recent interviews, he said that like while the memo documents, they were sort of publicly released or, or leaked in 2018 or whatever year it was recently. Uh, but Nolan said, Hey, I've actually been aware of these documents and kind of hinted, I've had these documents, you know, for 10 plus years now because they're, they're written after, you know, a meeting that supposedly took place in 2002 and then Ross Colthart obviously is, has said multiple times that he's very confident, you know, the provenance of the documents, you know, it's from Edgar Mitchell's estate. Yeah, I think it's interesting that that Nolan has had these for for years and years and years and also heavily hinted, you know, that he's been yeah. a member of the Invisible College, you know, for quite some time as well. I asked Chris Mullen about it as well. Um, he didn't confirm or deny, but uh, I, I asked him about the Wilson docs. I said, are they legit? And uh, and he said to me, um, he said to me, we'll put it this way. He said, I know Dr. Eric Davis well. And he said, um, and my time at the Pentagon coincided with, uh, with with Wilson. And he goes, I'll leave it at that. So he didn't say, no, it's bullshit. Yeah. He could easily have said, it's bullshit. That's crazy. That hmm. doesn't mean that it's, that he's saying it's true, but you know, yeah, right. it's pretty much what Dr. Eric Davis said, wasn't it? I can neither confirm nor deny. So, <laughs> right. Last we spoke, the invasion of Ukraine was on the horizon. Uh, I think that there were there was still some some debate uh, about whether or not uh, the, that conflict would escalate in the way that it has. But now, nearly eight months later, uh, is there any end to the conflict between Russia and Ukraine in sight? I think there is, um, barring some kind of wild card like. Um you know, so like a nuclear exchange of NATO, certain NATO countries in Russia. Um, but I think there is. I think with the recent offensive um, into uh, into the Kharkiv Oblast um, by the Ukrainians and their pressure now, they've completely unhinged the uh, the, the Russian front basically in, in the Donbass. Um, and I think there is an end in sight. Uh, a lot of people were saying, Oh yes, you know now they're going to go all the way to Russia and, and all this kind of stuff. It's like no, because you've got to have pauses in, in, a, in an offensive operation, right? You've got to like rest the men, you've got to rest the kit, you know, you've got to change tires and change oil and you know re-ammo up and wait for the artillery and and the engineers and everybody else to catch up with you as well. Um, but I think there is an end in sight. So long as the the Ukrainians have won a strategic victory, um, it, it's not just an operation; it's a strategic victory, and it doesn't matter. I think how many. Um, you know, forcibly, uh, you know, mobilized uh, conscripts, you know, most of whom are going to be very unhappy or ill or, you know, the wrong age, being sent to, 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 to shore up Russian positions in Ukraine. I think so long as um, the Ukrainians, you know, so long as the West continues to support them, then there is, there is an end in sight. Um, I would be looking for the Ukrainians based to stabilize that front um, uh, in, um, in, the, in the east and then uh, basically to chop through from somewhere like Volodar uh, down to Melitopol or or, or Mariupol, and um, basically cut off the east from you know the Kherson region, and also from uh, cut off Russian forces in the east of the country uh, from the Kherson region, and also from um, uh, um, Crimea, and then also as well uh, by doing that by seizing that kind of like that southern 
by retaking that southern Ukrainian coast. You can then bring the the, the Kerch Bridge, the Kerch Strait Bridge. You can bring that, which is the land route between uh, Russia and Crimea. You can bring that into the range of the HIMARS. Okay, and uh, then you can really start putting pressure on on Crimea. And I think the Ukrainians have already shown that they can put pressure on the on the Russians in Crimea with the uh, with the assets that they have uh, and with the you know the, the sabotage and the drones and all the rest of it. Um, so, and if they can push further south in Kherson uh, region as well, um, then you know they, they they basically bring themselves to, to the border of the isthmus, you know the the, the isthmus which, which separates um, you know Crimea from 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 mainland Ukraine. Um, so I think there is an end in sight, uh, but I think um, a lot depends on you know the, the keeping up the pressure in terms of support to Ukraine, and also you know that um, you know Putin doesn't completely throw his teddy in the corner and start using battlefield nukes. Battlefield nukes, if you use them, I don't think that they'd be um, decisive. Um, they they're about you know size of a you know Hiroshima bomb but I think with the Ukrainians they've had you know so many of their cities have been leveled already I don't think that they're gonna they're, I don't think that's going to stop them uh, and also as well mm-hmm. you know it brings the whole war to to a very very dangerous escalation and you know Biden ha- has warned you know in 60 minutes he, he's directly warned the Russians against using nukes because it could very very easily escalate and and, and you know nobody's the winner then and I think yeah. if you got to that situation I, I personally think that if Putin was actually thinking about using nukes, I think that that might be when he'd be removed by somebody because, you know, as a Russian military officer, however bad they are, right? I mean, they know it's not in the interests of, of Russia to go to war with NATO, either in conventional terms um, or in, um, you know, or, or, or with tactical nukes, right? So I think that that would be a, a restraining factor on Putin. But then again, you know, I'm not directly inside his head, so I don't know. Sure. But I, I think you have to take yeah. it very seriously anytime somebody like him, who obviously, you know, has megalomania, and who is completely ruthless? I think any time that somebody like that, and who ha- who is a decision maker, and they have you know they have control of nukes, I think you have to take it very seriously. Right. I was going to ask what incentive there would be for Vladimir Putin to step down from this position, even if all of the holdings in Ukraine were lost by the Russians. We've seen over the last ten or fifteen years the example been made of people like uh, Bashar al-Assad um, or even Omar Gaddafi to an extent that there isn't a, a way down from this position, at least not in uh, recent history. Uh, what, in, uh, what then would make this conflict different than the ones that we've seen become interminable and, and immutable in, in places like Syria? Well, I think that... Um the Russians have to be pushed out of Ukraine. Uh, you can't give, I mean, you couldn't, some people, you know, a lot of misguided people, in my opinion, have been talking about, you know, um, you know, offering a peace deal to Putin. Well, that's absolutely rubbish. I mean, a peace deal was offered to him, basically, in in, uh, in 2014, when he invaded Crimea, uh, when he started stirring everything up along, you know, Ukraine's eastern border. You had the Minsk Accords, and basically, what did you end up with? You ended up with, you know, a frozen conflict in the east of Ukraine. So long as you've got Russian troops and Russian proxies occupying the east of Ukraine, you're going to have a frozen conflict. So, the only way uh, to not have a frozen conflict is to, is to boot them out and for, and for Ukraine to have control over all its borders and further down the line to come into NATO. And I think it would be a very capable part of NATO as well. Um, as we've seen on the battlefield, they're extremely brave, they're extremely capable, and they're extremely well-led. And they're being, you know, they're being well-supplied, but you know, that could be better. But I think that's the only way. And you have to show 
um, you have to show, you know, bullies, you know, as in as in Munich in 1938. That, that that's the the opposite. That you know, when Chamberlain basically caved to Hitler, and then Hitler's like, well, I can do whatever I want. And so now, I mean, people ask, well, why did the West support this war in Ukraine? Well, it's very simple because Putin's plan was to attack the Baltic states next, and it's cheaper for mm-hmm. you know, the UK, for America, for the NATO and EU countries. It's cheaper for them um, to, to to send weapons. Uh, and money mm-hmm. and support and intelligence and training and all the rest of it to, to give that to Ukraine than to fight, uh, you know, a conventional war that could have tech nukes, um, you know, with Russia it, it, over a wider geographical area in Europe against NATO states. So that's the only way that, 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 that Putin has to basically be taught a lesson. And not taught a lesson as in, you know, humiliated. I mean, he's already been humiliated, but, but his forces need to be pushed out of Ukraine. Otherwise, it will just be another frozen conflict. Before the war started, when news kind of broke when Russia had first invaded Ukraine. I think like me personally, and I'm sure other people were like, oh no, this is going to be this like overnight thing. Russia is going to come in and just take Kiev and then it's going to be over, you know, rather quickly. And that's not at all what's happened. So obviously you have NATO in the West has dumped all this money into helping Ukraine push back Russia. And I don't know, maybe that wasn't as anticipated that level of support, but I guess like Frank, what do you, what was your original assessment when news broke that the invasion was happening? I mean, what 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 did you originally kind of think was going to happen when when the war started? Yeah, so you've got the principles of war, uh, which um, you know both you know professional armies, uh, especially like the UK and the United States, adhere to. It's taught to you know every every young officer, right? And then it's you know reinforced. You learn more and more about it the, the further you go up. So. First of all, you know, the, the first principle, you've got selection and maintenance of the aim, right? So this, this is like the master principle of war. So you need to have a, sig- a signal, a, a single, clear, unambiguous aim. Now, uh, Russia invaded from the east, it invaded from the north, from, from Belarus, right? It invaded from the south. It went two directions. It went, you know, um, west towards Odessa, east towards, um, you know, its forces in the east. But it, it didn't have enough troops. And that was, that was my initial thought. It's like there's, there's too many axes of advance. So if you're going to take Kiev, then go for Kiev. Don't go for all the other areas, right? And uh, you, you don't have enough troops to do that. And when I looked at that, and I was thinking, well, this is like actually crazy. If you look how many uh, you know, American and British and, and allied troops were involved like in, the, in the first Gulf War and also you know, the, the second Gulf War. And the other thing was um, you know, there was no suppression of enemy air defenses or, or, or not that much. And, and, and the Russians never, never gained control over the air. And, you know, to this day now, they, they, they stay in basically their, their, their bubbles, their sand bubbles. Um, and, you know, they, they didn't manage to take out the Ukrainian Air Force on the ground. Uh, you know, the Ukrainian Air Force is still operating. And now it's using, like, you know, harpoons. It's using, um, uh, it's using uh, harm anti-radiation missiles, uh, you know, which, which have been given to them. So um, they, they, they really screwed that up. Um, maintenance of morale, okay, so that's another issue. And, and, I, and you, soon, you soon saw that, like, basically Russian troops, like, ill-disciplined. And, and as soon as yeah, Ukraine yeah. put up re- resistance, you know, they weren't doing, like, you know, very well at all. Um, offensive action, yeah, the, the Russians, and you can apply these principles to Ukrainians as well. So offensive action, I mean, the, the, the Russians initially, yes, they were on the offense, but then once they, they started getting into, into difficulties, um, and, and a key point for me was um, Hostomel Airport, which um, the Russians tried to take, you know, w- w- with airborne. Um, and that was a very, very poorly planned assault. Like nobody came to relieve them. They landed. They were initially held off by, um, you know, Ukrainian territorial defense troops, right? So that was a, a key that was a key uh, aspect for me because the Ukrainians had, as soon as they went on the offensive, they had offensive spirit. Yeah. Um, and also you've seen, you know, the, the, the Russians, they failed in a lot of other areas. Initially, they, they didn't have the element of surprise either when they invaded. They've been talking about it for months. 
Right. They've been they've been saying for months. They've been building up on the borders and talking about it for months. So they didn't have the enemy of uh, the, the, the element of surprise. Um, they didn't have concentration of force because they had what like they had one, two, three, four, like at least five axes of advance when they went into Ukraine. So, that, so they didn't have concentrated force, and they didn't have an um, economy of effort. Um, that's um, basically exploiting manpower and materiel in, in time, uh, you know, to maximize uh, in relation to your objective, to, to, to maximize, uh, you know, your economy of effort. Um, the, the Russians didn't show any flexibility either. Um, when they started getting hit, like their convoys, right? Well, they, they couldn't use their they couldn't use the railways because from the start, the Iranian, uh, the Iranians, the Ukrainians um, started attacking the railways. And the Russians are very heavily dependent on the railways. But then they didn't show any flexibility because they were canalizing both their armored forces and then also their, all their supply forces, right? All, all their trucks and their tankers. They were canalizing them down these roads, which are basically just, you know, um, turkey duck shoots. So they, they showed no flexibility as to their, their logistics, which brings me to another one, which is, you know, sustainability. Like their logistics were like really, really flawed from the start because the Russians rely on, like I said, railways. So they need to have... Um, you know, warehouses, they need to have all their kits stored by the, the, the railways, right? So that's their petrol lubricants, that's their ammunition, uh, you know, their food, their water, their, you know, their, their, the, uh, you know, replacement troops as they come in uh, to depots. Uh, and then also, obviously, like all the spare parts that they need to keep their kit going. Um, so as soon as, the, as soon as the Ukrainians started getting things like HIMARS, um, they, they were able to start, you know, knowing, they'd know roughly, okay, in this area, there's going to be because the Russians are so reliant on railways in this area, they're going to have to be storing uh, all their kit near and the supplies near the near the railway station. And then, of course, you've got like you know partisans and special forces who've got eyes on all those areas. So as soon as they got high Mars, they start wiping them out. So my first impression was, to, to, sorry, there's a long long winded way of answering the question. When the when the Russians first went in, I thought, well, you know, not enough guys. And then as soon as they started coming into contact with the Ukrainians, I thought mm, they're going to get bogged down. They're getting into problems. For me, what has made a lot of this conflict explainable, right? Like if you want, like, why would Vladimir Putin invade Ukraine? It seems like this quagmire has been predictable. It seems like a lot of the response from the West has been predictable. Does a state of war make it easier for Putin to keep a lid on those who would challenge his authority from within Russia? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, you basically asked two questions there, I think. Why would he invade Ukraine? Well, I mean, he gave all the reasons. The real reasons were, you know, test NATO's resolve um, to you know, expand Russian Russian influence further into Ukraine to make sure that it could never enter into, um, you know, Europe's uh, ambit and also uh, NATO's ambit. And it's very interesting if you contrast like Transnistria, where the Russians have been trying to like, you know, provoke stuff amongst their so-called proxies there. The, the strongman, the HKGB strongman who runs the economy in Transnistria, he doesn't want to get involved in Russia's problems because he's been doing so much business with the West. And that's reliant on going through, uh, you know, trade going through Moldova because Moldova signed a free agreement with the West. So he doesn't want to get involved in Putin's problems. But that's just an interesting little nugget. But um, no, I mean, Putin, why did he go in? I mean, he thought it would be easy. He thought it would be over in like, you know, 100, 100 hours or whatever. Um, and he was misinformed because the Russians had very bad intelligence. They completely underestimated the Ukrainians, as did most people. I mean, you know, I, I underestimated them as well. Um, he completely underestimated the Ukrainians. So bad intelligence, very, very poor staff planning. Um, and I think that he was just told, you know, he said, oh, right, I want to make this happen. And, and who's going to say to him, no, I can't make it happen. You know, So that's why. Um, in terms of um, does it make it easier for Putin to keep a lead on those who challenge his authority inside Russia? I think he thought that it would. And I think that he's, it, it's been a big mistake because he's had to announce this partial mobilization for two reasons. 
Um, one is because of like the dire losses, you know, just the body bags piling up. Or in the Russian case, uh, maybe not so many body bags because they have, um, you know, furnaces going day and night and they just burn the bodies because, uh, you know, then they can avoid paying the parents and, and they don't have to have them going back um, you know, to Russia. I think, you know, he had to call this partial mobilization because, uh, sort of, you know, far right people, and it's hard to imagine anybody more kind of right than Putin. But, um, you know, the, the, the kind of real kind of like, you know, Russo fascist uh, nationalists. Uh, you know, they've been calling for this mobilization for like, you know, quite a long time saying like, you know, we need to crush Ukraine and, you know, we, we need like mass mobilization. But he, Putin hasn't wanted, wanted to do that, obviously, for domestic reasons, because it's extremely unpopular to have mass mobilization. But even this partial mobilization, one, it's it's being done extremely poorly, right? And all the wrong people are being sent to Ukraine. I mean, the, the, the Russian army there is in pieces. Even the elite units, some of the, you know, the, 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 the guards tank army was completely destroyed. OK, so. You're going to be sending all these people like, you know, protesters who've been rounded up and don't want to fight. And they're going to be sent to some, uh, you know, some decimated unit um, in the Donbass who don't want to fight either. So even, um, you know, if you just send the bodies there to dig in, it's, uh, it's going to be very, very unpopular back in Russia. And they're still going to be, get, you know, be killed on a large scale by the Ukrainians. So I think it's making it harder and harder for him to keep a lid on who will challenge him in Russia. Um, but I think, um, you know, he's still obviously got a grip and he still feels confident. Even with, um, you know, all the protests that have been going on in Russia, even with all the flack that he's been getting, even, uh, you know, internally, you know, from, from the right wing, uh, you know, all the vandalism and the attacks on recruitment centers. And also as well, more importantly now, like it, most important of all probably is his international isolation with if he had to announce publicly uh, that Xi Jinping had concerns about his, his operation in Ukraine, what was uh, Xi saying to him in private? And also, you know, the Indians as well. Because who are in this kind of weird kind of triangular relationship with, with Russia and China, um, you know the, the the Indians are, are disapproving, and I think you know that, that's another reason why I think he wouldn't use nukes because then he'd just be like even more of a, of a prior, and I don't think that China and India would want to go along with that. So I think it's it, he thought initially that war would kind of it would be a quick, fast war. It would instigate kind of Russian nationalism, uh, you know, like a you know a, a new Russia, and. Um, you know, and then once he'd crush Ukraine, then he could turn his sights onto the Baltic states and that, you know, the Russian people would be carried with him. It would be, a, you know, a war, initial war against Ukraine, one with, one with minimal cost uh, in men and material. And um, it's backfired. And I think now it's going to be even more difficult for him to keep a lid on, on people who would challenge him. But, you know, then again, you know, he, he's a wily old fox, right? He's a former KGB colonel. Um, so, uh, you know, watch this space. And you've transitioned us nicely towards a. Russian and Chinese interests and others, as you point out, have been made coherent, essentially, by uh, the invasion of Ukraine and heightened tensions on the Taiwan Strait. You you mentioned the international isolation of the Russians. Uh, the Chinese are saber-rattling in, in their sphere of influence. The alignment between Russia and China becoming more coherent seems like an alarming portent for what might be to come it is yes but if you kind of like look on the bright side as it were i mean okay so putin russians they've been supporting you know chinese claims in taiwan but um be keeping pretty quiet about you know south china sea right um but i think the the national security implications were quite frightening um in terms of you know two sort of nuclear armed states one you know a, a a serious economic challenger as well to the United States, a challenger, you know, China in military, economic, technological terms, um, who both want to you know, overturn the kind of like, you know, the international, you know, liberal, small L uh, international world order and rules-based order. But I think 
now in, increasingly for China, it's going to, you know, the, the relationship is going to be problematic because, um, you know, Russia is only useful um, so long as it can be useful. Um, and, you know, being bogged down in Ukraine, being an international pariah, you know, what kind of support really can could Russia, for example, offer militarily to China in the Far East now? Because China's interests aren't just Taiwan. It's about, you know, taking Taiwan eventually and then moving, you know, to the second island chain, right? And being able to threaten Japan and being able to eventually push America out of its, uh, you know, Indo-Pacific dominance. So I think that Xi's got to be very careful. I think that's why he's had, um, you know, serious kind of uh, serious concerns about his partner Putin. Because on the one hand, yeah, it's good for the Chinese uh, in that um, they can benefit from, you know, uh, Russian energy at, at cut price, uh, cut prices. Um, it can enable, um, you know, China to make further inroads into, um, you know, like the stands, you know, the, the, the former stands of the Soviet Union. Uh, and, you know, uh, but at the same time, um, we see problems in like the Caucasus and China doesn't want to see problems in the stands either because of because of Russia's weakness. Um, you know, we saw the recent, you know, kind of a conflict almost flare up again between Azerbaijan um, and, and Armenia, okay, you know, with, with a few hundred people killed. You know, Putin's weakness, a certain amount of weakness is good for China, but too much weakness isn't good for China, especially if um, it, it means that, you know, like, uh, you know, the Caucasus and the Stans and, and everything that, that, that's, that China, China wants for its Belt and Road initiative start kind of coming unglued because of, of Russian weakness. It also, as well, you know, China's been playing this balancing act where, whereby it's, it's been... Um, you know, tacitly supportive of, of, uh, of Putin's attack on Ukraine, right? But now, uh, for example, you know, uh, you know, like Turkey is, is the other one who kind of played a balance out, and they said, no, Crimea should return to, to, to Ukraine. And you know, China doesn't want to get involved in a situation where it's going to be sanctioned by, by the West, right? Because, you know, it doesn't want to have a, a massive down and further massive downturn in its economy because that's what keeps the people happy and that's what keeps the party in control. So China's got to be very careful with this balancing act. The economic indicators in China point towards a significant downturn, a slowdown in the economy for a range of reasons from, you know, the, the real estate market to the ramifications of the pandemic. Does that slowdown in China's economy make escalation over the South China Sea more or less likely to you? I think it makes um, the regime certainly more bellicose uh, because, um, you know, the since the kind of reforms of the late seventies, the kind of the the sort of pact between the party and the people, as it were, or the social contract. Yeah, that's a good word for it. The social contract has been, uh, you know, ever increasing, uh, ever increasing growth in the economy and, and ever rising um, living standards. Um, so, if those living standards start to be impacted, and like as you, you mentioned, like the real estate market, I mean, that's a very good one, and with lots of angry people, um, you know, saying, "Well, you know, I've been ripped off, I've lost my money," uh, then. Their living standards go down, then people get unhappy. So, how do you divert their attention? So, you know, banging the banging the Taiwan drum and, and the nationalist drum against you know the, the United States and, and Europe and whoever else, India, whoever else. It, that, that that's when it comes in useful. So, I think in a period where um, you know China, if it were to suffer like you know significant financial shocks or, sh- or shock, then then that might make a uh, a Taiwan episode more likely, especially if, if it fig- if it thought that you know American forces wouldn't be able to stop it in, in its objectives, military objectives, um, as regards Taiwan. Now, a lot of people say, um, "Oh yes, but you know, um, you know, uh, China is so interlinked with, with with you know the global economy with the American economy that you know it wouldn't want to ruin its own economy by you know by going to war, effectively." Uh, but you have to look at it from the Chinese point of view. Is that you know the the the, the party um, needs to maintain its grip in power? That the, the party. 
foreign policy of China and the intern and, and the, the, the internal policy of uh, of China is the are the policies of the party is to keep the party in power. Um, so the party will do, uh, or whoever's in charge of the party, the party will do whatever it needs to do to stay in, to stay in power. And I think people really underestimate the, uh, you know, the kind of nationalist pull um, that you know that the whole Taiwan issue has has for China because it, it goes back. Um, it goes back, you know, you know, it goes back hundreds of years, and, you know, and especially like you know the, the the last kind of you know 150 years, the humiliation that China suffered at the hands of Westerners, you know, the treaty ports, uh, you know, the, the the invasion by Japan, occupation in Manchuria, all the rest of it. You have to understand how it, it, it impacts Chinese nationalism and Chinese pride, and also China's you know Chinese sense of grievance as well. So that that should never be underestimated. You know, both Frank, you and Ross Coulthard have talked openly kind of about the danger that some scientists uh, face in their research on next generation, you know, weapons platforms. So you've said on this show before that command and control of this platform could decide or would decide the course of uh, geopolitics in the future. So at this point, do you think there is an espionage war going on in the United States? Well, I know there is, and also you know, in every other Western yeah. country, and there has been for decades. I remember, um, I remember being a young consultant at P- KPMG. I'd come out of the military. I think it was about um, 1997 or 1998. Going back in time here, but um, I did a I did a whole kind of like a, a wall chart um, of um, you know, Chinese espionage attempts. Exactly what they're talking about today about uh, you know companies doing business with American companies, uh, students coming across and and and, and going to uh, you know, American universities to learn, um, uh, Chinese professors doing, um, you know, um, uh, you know, transfers to American universities, right? That was all going on back in the day, and Chinese intelligence was all over it then. And Chinese intelligence, the Ministry of State Security, ha- has evolved considerably and, and has got, you know, much, much better. I think the FBI, if you look at the United States, they're, up, they're opening up a new case of Chinese espionage, something like every six hours. So if you remember recently, they, wow. didn't they shut down the... Um, didn't they shut down the Chinese consulate in Houston? Was it um, uh, mm. because of, because of espionage? So there's a lot going on. <laughs> there's a lot going on. Canada as well. Yeah. It's been going on. The United Kingdom. So that espionage is going on all the time. It's been going on for decades, and the Chinese are getting better and better at it. And I think that's one reason, for example, why um, you know Biden's come down uh, quite firmly and said, okay, you know, you chip companies, you can't produce. Um, you can't, you can't, you can't build these, you know, certain facilities in China, and, and you can't supply them um, with certain types of, uh, you know, equipment for making ships, right? So that, that 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 to me is pretty indicative that the Americans and the West in general have a major problem. One of the more like unfortunate things that I've sort of seen arise from uh, rumors of the Chinese doing espionage in the United States and whatnot is how like politicized it's become because. On the right, you have in, in America this almost just like red scare level of like, oh my God, China has infiltrated everything and they're doing this and that. And then you, people like on the far left are like, okay, well, this isn't that big of a deal. Like, who cares? Whatever. There's more pressing issues to focus on. But if you're a scientist working on one of these programs, you know, this is your livelihood. And to constantly be under the threat of a foreign state for working on you know, technology that can, that can change the world. I mean, what, what, 
what what kind of quality of life is that to to i don't know to be constantly under that threat so i don't know that's they have a horrific quality of life yeah it's it's crazy to me and they get no recognition they get no recognition for what they're doing and so to deal with that and then to walk out of your place of work on a daily basis and be in a constant state of worry i don't know i i uh my my personal opinion on the espionage that's been going on, I think has changed quite a bit over, over the past year or so in terms of how we in America should be like approaching this um, in a way that, like I said, isn't, isn't exactly politicized. So I think, I think that's the, the, the way it's been politicized in America is hurting, is hurting. Um, I don't know, our ability to kind of deal with the situation. So I, th- I think, um, sorry, American, you know, the, the kind of the, the massive schism in American politics and the, and the, and the, and the extremes that you've seen are extremely uh, very concerning to people like me. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'd say an America lover. Um, I spent a lot of time in the States. I worked obviously a lot in military with, with Americans and, you know, they're my comrades basically. And America is needed for, is required for global leadership and having these kind of schisms inside, which you know, to the delight of the likes of China, Russia, North Korea and, um, mm-hmm. and Iran. Um, is no good for the rest of the world. It's no good for America. And it's no good for the rest of the world. And um, I think people, you know, who are skeptical about you know the level of espionage, well, just look at what happened, um, you know, in the UK with Novichok, with innocent people being killed by you know Russian GRU agents using using a deadly nerve agent. Right. So if anybody has any doubts, um, I've spoken to five different scientists um, who've all been other uh, uh, subjected to directed energy weapon attacks, um, all kinds of um, you know hacking. Uh, um, some of them have been like you know uh, physically assaulted. Uh, nerve agents have been used. Directed energy weapons. I know of other scientists have also been um, had people following them and had directed energy weapons used against them. And I know one scientist who's who's since died. Right. So uh, been murdered effectively. So people should be in no doubt about it. No doubt about it. And that's why I haven't published anything thus far on it. Um, not for myself. Just because I want to. I want to get you know all my all my all my kind of ducks in a row. But um, you know, I do. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not the only person researching this, right? Because obviously, I talk to people. I'm not the only person mm-hmm. researching this. You mentioned this week uh, on the disclosure team uh, one of one of your sources who who had uh, succumbed to the consequences of this this espionage war. Why should that story receive more attention than it's getting? Uh, yeah, probably should. Um, just um, now is not the right time. Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of been my whole thing on this particular story from the beginning. Is well, I guess it's it's a it's a bit of a conundrum because part of me is like, I think an element of this people would benefit from publicity. People working on this stuff, um, if it if at least some of it became known, but. The flip side to that is there are grave national security concerns to publicizing it because, and Michael and I had this conversation recently, if you make public the story about kind of what's going on here with these scientists and in these, these espionage attacks, well, the question is going to arise at some point, what are they working on? And, you know, that's, that's a card that, the American defense intelligence apparatus would be revealing to uh, foreign rivals and adversaries. 
that, hey, we have this stuff, we're working on it. Um, so I don't know, I, it, it, to me, it's, it's kind of a conundrum. I don't, I don't know what you think about that, Frank, but I, that's something that I, I don't have a firm kind of stance on at this point um, in terms of how to address that. So. Yeah, the other question would be was, you know, how does the American um, sort of intelligence and security establishment um, allow these activities to go on for, you know, pretty much with impunity? That's the other thing. Um, so is it because there's some kind of like overarching plan and they're really watching everything in play and you know, there's a bigger kind of intelligence uh, you know, gain to be had, to be netted in the future? Or is it because, um, you know, there's kind of stovepiping and, and, you know, incompetence at some levels? And um, you know, maybe the, the, this situation isn't being taken so seriously, um, or is being taken seriously for one reason or another. You know, certain agencies don't want to act. So I think there's there's a lot more to this. But um, I know, I know that you know people have been very interested in, in, in what I'm doing um, in terms of uh, uh, you know people in government and also in you know in, in that kind of uh, intelligence and security community. We'd like to dig a little deeper on that in, in the coming months, if if at all possible. So if, if anyone hearing this episode or, 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 you know, this week or down the line, you know, wants, wants to reach out and, and chat with us, we would uh, we'd be thrilled to have the opportunity to bring a little bit more light to the story. Frank, thank you again for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Is there yeah, anything? Thank you so much. No, cheers, guys. It was a really good one, actually. Kind of like it all kind of segued nicely into. I did. I did. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. I'll go ahead and, and take us out.